The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. To worship our God, to hear and be reminded of the gospel. We get to hear from the Lord. We get to hear from the Holy Spirit through his inspired word tonight. Isn't that exciting? So we've been going through the book of Mark. If you guys want to open in your Bibles to chapter 11, that's where we're going to pick it up. Chapter 11, verse 27. And let's pray. Father, uh, God, tonight we're, we're really only interested in, uh, in being reminded of one thing, and that is your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're not here to merely, merely uh, accumulate knowledge or, or philo- philosophical thinking or theology or doctrine. Lord, we're interested in anything that will point us to uh, your son, Jesus, because your son, Jesus, Lord, is the point. <laughs> He's the eternal point. He's the practical point. He's the, the point for now that we need, Jesus. So I pray, Father, specifically that your Holy Spirit would minister the gospel to us tonight, God, that we would be reminded, Jesus, of what you did, of who you are, of your power, of your authority over all, over us. I just pray you would teach us tonight, God. We need you desperately. In your name, amen. All right. So, sort of a question. Have you guys ever thought about, pondered, spent time thinking about uh, the different approaches of people in the world to this idea of a deity? to this idea of an authoritative creator, uh, this idea of an author, if you will, someone that has actually made and created the heavens and the earth, the idea of a God. Have you guys ever thought about, out of the the billions of people in this world, how everyone has sort of a different approach to what their thought, what their idea is of God? Everyone has different ideas. Some people, as we'll talk about, some people, they will just completely reject the idea. Whereas other people, they sort of thrive on the idea of there being a God. Some people need there to be a God. Some people are, are almost sort of wired in a way where they, they want there to be some sort of God, whereas others want nothing to do with God. Why is that? It's interesting. I think, I was thinking about this today, I think that there are five approaches, okay, just, just as an intro here, there are five approaches apart from Jesus Christ that you can have to the idea of an authoritative creator God. A deity, a God that is, that is the, 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 the one that breathed life into humanity, the one that created the heavens and the earth. You can only have five, apart from Jesus, you can only have five understandings or views on that. Okay, so I want to go through those really quick. The first view that you can have concerning whether there's a God, concerning whether there's a creator, is to reject that idea. Okay, to say, I choose to not believe. Now, we can all agree that within our nature, within our makeup, within our DNA, we all have thought about, is there a God? From the earliest age, right? We've all thought about it. Is there a God? Is there someone that's authoritative over me? Is there someone that I'm supposed to answer to? Is there someone I'm supposed to, to, is there some reason why I'm here? And some people's response to that, firstly, is to reject the idea of that. There is no God. We would call this atheism, right? A lot of us, probably all of us know an atheist or understand a little bit about atheism. It's to say that there is no God. I reject the idea, reject the notion that there is a God. This is prevalent in our culture right now, right? Not only is it prevalent in in our culture to have people that are rejecting God, but we also have what's called anti-theism, which is people that are not only rejecting the idea of God, but they're going out of their way to make war on God. People like Richard Dawkins, people that will will literally go to fisticuffs over a God that they don't even believe in. C.S. Lewis states, he says, 
Atheists express their rage against God, although in their view, he does not exist. It's kind of comical, isn't it? They're fighting against, they're, they're, they're making war against, they're being anti-theists against the God they don't even believe is there. They're making war essentially in their mind against nothing. Why are they doing that? They're doing it because it puts them in a place where they no longer have to submit under any authority. If you deny, if you reject the fact that there is a God that sits you in a comfortable place, seemingly, where you can say, if there's no God, then who makes the call? Who makes the decisions in my life? Well, I do. So who becomes the God in your life if you're an atheist? You do. You are now in the place of God. You say, I make my own decisions. I do what I want. I decide what I want. I decide what I believe. So an atheist can sit and posture themselves in a place where they say, I don't believe in a God, therefore I am God. What's the second thing that you can do thinking about the idea of a deity, a creator, an author, an authority? The second thing that you can do is not to reject it, but to simply ignore it. Okay? We would call this agnosticism, right? To be an agnostic is someone that doesn't necessarily say, I believe in God, and doesn't necessarily say, I don't believe in God. They're just sort of kind of waiting for him to show up. I don't really have an opinion. I don't know. There could be a God. There couldn't be a God. I'm not really sure. But hey, if he shows up and knocks me over the head, then I'll believe. That's agnosticism. That's a comfortable place to be, I think, for a while, because what you're essentially saying is like, I'm going to just put that off. There's this nagging thought in my head, is there a God? But I'm going to deal with that later. It's kind of like that chore or that bill that you need to do. You need to deal with it. And the more you don't deal with it, the more the interest accumulates, but you just kind of leave it on the back burner. That's agnosticism. They know there is either a God or there isn't a God, but they don't want to deal with it. They're going to deal with that later. That puts them in a place where, once again, they can be the God of their life. Because they have no one to submit to. There's no authority in their life that tells them why they're here, what they're to be doing, where they're headed. The third thing, the third option that you can take in concerning thinking about deity, a creator, an author, is a little different than the first two. This one actually resembles more of a religion, and we see a lot of people in this. As I said earlier, some people want there to be a God. You know that? Some people like the idea of there being a God. That doesn't mean they're Christian. That doesn't mean they're even necessarily living in the truth. The third option is to approach God based upon works. We see this in multiple cults, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnessism. Uh, we see this in, uh, in, in Islam and multiple different religions in the world where basically the center of the religion is based off of if I do this and this, God loves me, God accepts me. If I do not do this and this, God does not love me, God does not accept me. It's the third view you can take on God and a lot of people are in that view of God, right? A lot of people, that's, that's their idea of authority. And people like that. Why? I talked about last week, I talked about shalom and peace and how we all have to seek, we're all seeking for peace. What's well, sort of a momentary relief from peace when someone gives you a checklist and you do it? Why? Because you feel good about yourself for a minute, right? Hey, God said to do X, Y, and Z. I did at least X and Y, so I'm doing pretty good. Give yourself a pat on the back. People like that. Some people thrive on that, right? The fourth option is to create your own God. Now, Americans know about this very well. Okay. Uh, it, it didn't start with America, though. Let me say this. It actually started with Rome. 
with Greece and Rome. That Greco-Roman culture is where we really first see this in history, at least that I know of. And, and this is what they did. This plurality of gods, this, this multiplicity of gods where they didn't just have one god. It wasn't monotheism. It was polytheism where they have multiple hundreds, thousands of gods. They have gods for everything. They have gods for love, for sex, for war. They have gods of money, gods of dance, gods of joy, gods of fear, gods of anger, God for everything. And what you do is, as a Roman or a Greek, is you would go in and you would say, well, what God do I like? (laughs) What God represents me? Kind of like when you pick out an outfit. You know, what kind of outfit represents who I am? Well, I like this shirt. It's blue. It's plaid. It's a button-up. That represents me. I'm going to buy that shirt, and I'm going to put that shirt on. It's sort of like that. That's the idea of creating your own God. This is what the Greeks did, and this is what we do, only we don't call it the same thing. We would look at the Romans and say they're silly, right, in our culture. But the reality is we do something else. It's called Unitarian Universalism. That's a a big fancy word to basically say that all gods are really just one god. Have you guys heard that in our culture before? The God of Buddha, the God of Islam, the God of Judeo-Christian, whatever, the the God of the Catholics, it's all really one god. And we're all worshiping the same God. So because of that, you can worship whoever you want. You can pick your God. You can design your God. You can make up your own God. There's the God of Oprah, the God of whatever, whoever. We all make our own God, right? See, Oprah fans, I'm sorry. But the reality is she's, she's designed her own God. She's designed her own gospel, right? And it's not the true Jesus. Some people are designing their own Jesus, a Jesus that's not so harsh, a Jesus that doesn't give parables like we're going to look at today, a Jesus that lets them do what they want, that gives them what they want, that allows them to live in sin and and to do what they want to do. This is the fourth option of what to do with and deal with God as a deity is to say, you know what, I'm going to create my own God. And the fifth one, this is the one that I was in before before I got saved, and that is to say, I know there's a God, I know it's Jesus, but I don't care. Anybody know anybody like that? That was me. As a kid, before I got saved, I literally knew Jesus was the king. I knew he wanted my life. I knew he required all of my life. I feared the Lord, but I literally said, I don't care. <laughs> so that's the, fifth, that's the fifth way I think that you can view and look at um, the fact that there is a creator. There is an author. Now, Jesus, you guys might have heard of him. Jesus, our king, rejects all five of these. He rejects every single one of them. Why? Because every single one of these outlooks of the authority of some sort of deistic or rejecting the authority of some sort of deistic figure, every single one of them puts man in the place of God. Even the works-based one does. How? Well, it does it because if you are responsible for earning your own salvation, then you are your savior. Therefore, you are your God, right? I control my destiny, right? Absolutely not. Jesus not only rejects this thinking, but he says a little further than that. He actually says, not only do I reject it, I am the authority. Not only do I reject the ideas of these different authorities, I am the authority. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now to review a little bit, Jesus has spent three years of his ministry. Man, that rain's real coming down. Jesus has spent three years of his ministry in Galilee, in Samaria, all different places, Palestine, the Mediterranean Sea, different cities. And, and now, after three years of ministry, he has made his entry into Jerusalem. It's the last week of his ministry. Not only is it the last week of his ministry, it's the most jam-packed week of his ministry. Every day, there's something going on in Jesus' ministry in his last Passion Week. It's, it's amazing. It's phenomenal. Literally, every week, we've been looking at one day. 
We looked at Monday, we looked at Tuesday, we're looking at Wednesday. I mean, it's crazy. Every day there's something going on. And, and Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Passover week, which is phenomenal. We talked about that. The Lamb of God coming in on Passover week. The lamb that would take away the sin of the world on Passover week when, when it was a celebration where lambs were sacrificed. He comes in, he has this hundreds of thousands of Jews coming and laying down palm branches and, and yelling, Hosanna and save now. It's this amazing moment. He goes into the temple, nothing going on. He goes back to, to Bethany, comes back the next day. We looked at this last week. He cleanses the temple, flips over tables, commands authority as we'll look at today. He commands authority in the temple. And then, curses the fig tree, we talked about that. It's the next day. It's the third day. So Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 11, verse 27, says this. Everybody there? Okay. We're just going to work through this systematically. We're going to take it, take it one little, little chunk at a time. So Mark eleven twenty-seven says this. So they came again to Jerusalem. Okay, so it's the third day. They went to Bethany. They're back in Jerusalem. And as he, Jesus, was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Now picture this really quick. This is kind of cool. The day prior, Jesus cleansed and took control of the temple. So for one day, Jesus is in charge of the temple, if you know what I mean. Jesus has control of what's going on. Jesus is walking out in rabbinic style with his disciples and with hundreds of people listening, and he's teaching, and he's talking, and he has control of the temple. It's a phenomenal thing. It's the way it'll be for eternity but it's not to last. Verse 28, they said to him, who, the, the priests, the scribes, the elders, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Okay, so they come up to him and they say, what are you doing, okay? Who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to do the things that you're doing? Let's talk about something really quick. Notice in verse 27, it says the chief priests, it says the scribes and the elders came to him. You say, big deal. They're the ones always coming to him. Not necessarily. Something interesting here we need to note. Those three groups, okay, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, made up a core group of the religious elite in Israel, in Jerusalem, and they were called the Sanhedrin. Okay, I want you to remember that, the Sanhedrin. These were 71, a group of 71 men that were the top key religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they were made up by these three groups, by the priests, the scribes, the elders. Okay? This is an important group of people. They held nearly complete freedom and power over religion in Jerusalem, in Israel. Okay? They didn't have power over political things as we see when, when they dealt with Jesus. They needed Pilate. They went to Pilate to try to get him to deal with Jesus. But according to religious things, they have power. They run the temple. They run all of the religious actions of Judaism in Israel. This is an important group. This is like the senators. This is like the top group of people that you have in that society. The people that are the highest in authority religiously. Um, they were considered to be a buffer, a mediator, in a sense, to between Rome and the Jews. And lastly, um, it's important to note, why are these guys talking to them? Why, I mean, this, is, this is, other than when Jesus literally is on trial and about to be crucified, this is the only other time in Mark that it's recorded that the Sanhedrin specifically, the top religious authorities, actually took time to go and speak with Jesus, actually took time to go and question Jesus. What that tells me is that things are heating up. 
Things are moving. The clock is ticking. The seven days Jesus is within the Passion Week is heating up and getting more intense. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, the the, the Sadducees, they're getting frustrated and irritated with Jesus. They're done with him. Things are getting to the point where it's such a problem for them that they literally, the top dogs come down and talk to you. You know it's a big deal when the CEO flies in to tell you that your store is not doing well, right? That's a big deal. Well, the top religious leaders have taken and their time to come and to speak with Jesus. And what we essentially have here is we have these high up religious leaders coming and talking to seemingly a Jewish peasant from Galilee, farm country, specifically Nazareth, a poor town, who's this rabbi with this rabble group of, of disciples, fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. And here you have this, the highest Jewish religious group taking the time to, to talk and, and, and question Jesus. Why is this? Why, why are they taking time to even mess with him? Why does this, why does this rabbi even matter? Why does, it, why does it matter what he's doing? Because he's challenging their authority. Well, how is he challenging their authority? I want to look at that really quick. Now, I can't look at everything uh, that Jesus challenged the authority because there's just too much, but some key things, okay? Some key things on how Jesus challenged the authority and displayed, better yet, the authority uh, of himself. First of all, Jesus presumes to forgive sins. You guys remember that in Mark chapter 2? He heals the paralytic, but he doesn't stop there. Not only does he heal the paralytic, he, he firstly, he says, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? No one can forgive sins but God. Jesus does it, and then just to prove his authority, his power, he heals them anyways. So Jesus claims his authority by forgiving sin. Jesus accepted sinners. We learn in Mark 2, remember that he sits at the, at the table with tax collectors, with, with prostitutes, with, with uh, Gentiles, with all of these sinners. What authority does this Gentile, or, I'm sorry, what authority does this Jewish rabbi have to sit with sinners like that? Uh, Jesus taught with authority. Remember in the beginning of Mark in chapter 1, Jesus literally preached his first sermon that we read in Mark, and everyone was taken back by his authority. Why? Because he didn't preach like most rabbis. Well, the way that most rabbis would preach much like the way it works in the academic world, is he would, most rabbis would quote other rabbis. That was how they sort of got their credentials. So if you quote that guy, then, then your authority is sort of coming from this guy. Jesus didn't do that. 70 times in the Bible, Jesus literally says, he literally says, truly I say to you. Not truly my rabbi mentor says to me, or not truly Gamaliel or some famous rabbi says, or, or anything like that. He literally says, truly I say to you. And we might just read over that. But what Jesus is doing there is he's proclaiming, he's declaring his authority, that he is the one saying this, that this truth, this doctrine, this, these words coming out of his mouth are from him. His authority is from him himself, not from anyone else. Jesus showed authority over demons. In Mark chapter 5, we see Jesus literally speaking, and the demons tremble, they flee. He has authority over the supernatural realm as well as the natural realm. Jesus claimed authority over the Sabbath. Remember, him and his disciples are walking through a field, they get some grain, the Pharisees give him a hard time because it's the Sabbath. Jesus turns around and says, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) Uh, First of all, the Sabbath isn't for man. I'm sorry, the man isn't for Sabbath, the Sabbath is for man. And secondly, he says this, listen, the son, so the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't just say, yeah, I don't really care what you guys think. No, he says, ah, actually, I made the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. I'm the Lord over the Sabbath. 
It's an intense, authoritative statement that he made. Jesus showed authority over nature, right? He climbs out of the boat after sleeping and there's a storm and Jesus rises and he speaks and nature obeys him. He shows his authority there. Jesus constantly refers to himself as the son of man, which the priests would have known from the book of Daniel was a direct reference to him being Messiah, being the one that was to come. And lastly, if that's not enough, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus literally says these words. He says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Okay, my point here is Jesus made his authority evident. It was a hammer and a nail, and he drove that over and over again. There was no question in the, in the, in the religious leaders' minds as to whether Jesus thought he had his own authority, as to whether he acted as if he was God, as if he had all authority from above. This was not any random thing for them to, to accuse him and ask him about. And most recently and most applicably, what happened the day before, Jesus started flipping over tables and took over, literally, the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Talk about authority. I mean, he comes in and just commands the place. He takes over the temple. And now it's gotten to a point where the Sanhedrin has literally said, we got to deal with this guy. He is getting too big for his britches. We got to deal with this guy. Where is he getting this authority? Let's go question him. Now, what's the real issue here? Is the real issue here that they're actually concerned about, about him claiming authority? Or is the real issue here that they're concerned because Jesus is challenging their authority? right? It's not just that Jesus is coming in and and being authoritative and and coming in and and, and saying things from his own mind, his own heart. No, he's coming in and challenging and coming against and calling out and even so much as cursing in a sense the temple and cursing the priests and saying, you guys are done. You guys are over. We looked at the fig tree last week. He literally cursed that fig tree and that was a representation of the temple. So he's coming against everything that they're doing. This is offensive. They're going to take him out. They're over it. Verse 29. So Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus. They ask him, what authority are you doing this? And then Jesus kind of fires back with this question. I'll tell you. He says, I'll tell you what authority, but first you've got to answer me a question. What's he doing there? Why is he doing that? Why is he, why is he shooting back a question? This is rabbinic style. This is the way they would do things. A rabbinic-style reply would be to answer a question with another question. It's nifty. Jesus is up to something here. So he, he responds by saying, why don't you answer my question? And then his question is, verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. What's he talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist. This is random. <laughs> okay. They come up, they, they say, where do you get off doing these things? And Jesus said, let me ask you a question. The baptism of John. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's funny, right? I mean, that's like someone asking me why my shoes are blue, and I say, well, why don't you go to China and figure out how to make fried rice? What does that have to do with your blue shoes? I'll give me that as a bad analogy. But, but seriously, I mean, it, it seems like Jesus is diverting. He's saying, no, 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 let's talk about John the Baptist. <laughs> Almost like, you know, when you get in trouble and you're a little kid, and you're just like, oh, but look, Billy's over there stealing a cookie, you know? Like, is that what he's doing? Is he trying to get the focus, the attention over to John the Baptist? Is he, is he evading the question? It's interesting. More specifically, why, not, not, not just why is Jesus drawing attention to John the Baptist, but more, more important, I think, is why is Jesus drawing attention to the baptism of John? 
specifically. Because he, he doesn't just say, hey, is John the Baptist from the Lord? He says, is the baptism of John from the Lord? It's really interesting. Check this out. So the Pillar New Testament commentary made a really big statement as I was studying for this, and it stopped me. And I go, I gotta know what they're gonna say to this. It literally said this about this verse. It says, remarkably, everything that needs to be known, okay, listen, everything that needs to be known about Jesus can be summed up in one event, the baptism of John. That was a big statement. I kind of stopped reading, and I'm like, how? (laughs) How can everything... How can everything about the ministry of Jesus being summed up in the event of baptism of John? Well, what exactly happened at the baptism of John? That's where we need to start. There's a reason Jesus is directing their attention, not merely to John the Baptist, but to the baptism of John the Baptist, and even more specifically to Jesus' baptism from John the Baptist. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And I, th- I, I really I wanted to cut this out and not read the whole thing, but I think we need to read it together because it's important. Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to start reading while you flip in there. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and whose food was locust and wild honey. He lives in Ashland. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, okay, note that, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism. So who's present at his baptism? Pharisees and the Sadducees. Try that again. Who's present at his baptism? You guys are awesome. I'm sorry about the actual joke. Okay. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now skip to verse 11. He says, I've baptized you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with two things, the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John. So after all this preaching that John is doing, Jesus comes along, he comes to be baptized by John. John would have, in verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Now listen to verse 16. This is key. When Jesus was baptized, Jesus is about to get dunked. Immediately, when he came out from the water, he comes up, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. I want you to picture this. Jesus is in the Jordan. It's a little river. It's not very big. Uh, There's little fish that are nibbling at his feet, right, Jeff? Uh, there's these little fish in the Jordan that just like, they nibble at your feet. It's really freaky. Um, anyways, uh, so he comes up out of the water and the heavens open up and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Can you imagine seeing this? And behold, a voice from heaven said, now this is before the age of subwoofers and speakers. So there's no fake in this, okay? There's no like, oh, hey, we hit a car stereo in the, in the side of the bank of the river and we're just blaring this voice of God. No, no that's not happening. This, this is happening. This is irrefutable. Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
Okay, now the reason I read that whole thing, again, why is Jesus responding to this question, just to bring us back around, why is Jesus responding to this question by shifting their attention to John the Baptist and his baptism? A few things to note from that. First of all, John the Baptist fully believed that Jesus was Messiah, didn't he? He fully believed that Jesus was Messiah. It's important because Malachi says so. It's prophetic. But secondly, God himself, when Jesus came out of the water, God himself spoke from the heavens that, declaring, that, that he was declaring Jesus' son. What's happening there literally is a spiritual inauguration. Why that's so important is that this moment, it is made clear, it is made evident, it is made obvious of the authority of Jesus Christ because God the Father has given him that authority. God the Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is Messiah. This is God. This is who you are to look to and this is who has all authority in heaven and in earth. And guess who's there to see it? The Pharisees right? And the Sadducees, what are they doing there? I mean, that's funny. They're there. I, I missed that before. I, just, I, I missed that. So now this is a little bit of assumption, but I don't think it's that far to assume this, that the Pharisees that witnessed what happened there when Jesus was crowned, when Jesus, I'm sorry, was inaugurated and given power and, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. I don't think it's too far to imagine that the Pharisees went and talked to their bosses, their leaders, and said, man, the craziest thing just happened. We were out listening to that hippie dude that eats locust, and he was baptizing some other guy, and then this voice came out of heaven, and this dove ascended. <laughs> I mean, this is crazy. It's irrefutable. They knew. Okay, so fast forward the clock. Two, three years later, here Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, and he points his attention to John the Baptist. Why is he pointing their attention to John the Baptist and his baptism? Because they would have known that Jesus was God because they would have known that God the Father gave authority, that God the Father said, this is my son. They would have known that. Think of the brilliance of the question. I mean, this is a brilliantly and masterfully pointing question to the truth that they already know. Jesus says, you want to know where I get my authority? Well, what do you think about the baptism of John? More specifically, what do you think about when I got baptized by John? They knew. Now, you can, you can argue that, and that's fine. And I, I really did spend some time looking at that because I really believe that they did, which further proves the hardness of their hearts, right? The seriousness of Jesus' question, the division of Jesus' question even goes beyond that because what Jesus is saying is he's saying if the baptism of John really happened, if John is, is the one spoken of in, in Malachi, if God the Father really did open the heavens and say that you are Messiah, then what are you gonna do about that? He said, if it's from heaven, then that means that they, well, if it's from heaven, then, then these religious leaders are going to have to acknowledge that. They're going to have to deal with this authority. They're going to have to deal with the reality that Jesus is God, and they don't want to do that. If they say, as, as we'll read it, if they say that it's not from heaven and none of that did happen and that John was just some crazy dude, they're scared that the people are going to come together and they're going to actually literally take him out. Look at verse 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. It's interesting. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's not diverting the question. He's not averting their attention to something to try to distract them. He's piercing them through the heart with the reality of what happened at the baptism of John, which is causing them 
as the gospel does, let me say, is causing them to have a reality check question. The one the agnostics are putting off. The one the atheists are ignoring. Is Jesus God? And if he is, what am I going to do about that? They want to just say, that was lame, John the Baptist wasn't real, blah, blah, blah. But they can't. Why? Because they care more about their position of authority. They don't want to lose their position. They don't want the people to hate them. They don't want to be responsible for any of that. People love John the Baptist. They thought of him as a prophet. And they don't want to mess with that politically, right? Look at verse 31. And they discussed it with one another. I already read that. Never mind. Moving on. Verse 33. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Jesus is like, oh, you're not going to tell me? You're going to cop out? You're not going to choose between these two harsh, hard answers? Well, I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> I'm going to take my ball and go home. You know what I mean? He says, I'm not going to do it. But the reality of that is that Jesus has no interest in revealing truth to someone that already has it but doesn't want it. Right? I mean, they know. They know the truth. They don't care because they love their status, their religious piety, their authority more than they care about whether Jesus is truly Messiah. And they will do anything to kill him, get rid of him, hide him under the table, sweep him under the rug, and move on with being awesome in their mind in the religious world. Now, I'm going to try to move fast through this. As is common of our Lord when he, when he wants to illustrate something, when he wants to illuminate something, draw a picture for us, uh, he would give a story. He would give a parable. And this is exactly what happens here. The following parable is Jesus shedding light through what's going on in the, the, the dialogue that we've just discussed between the Pharisees and uh, in, in, in the Sanhedrin, I'm sorry, and, and Jesus. This parable shines light. It opens the curtain into what's really going on what's going on in their hearts, and what's going to happen in a few days. It's interesting. So let's look at it. Verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another city. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now this would be a common thing in Israel. Okay? It's a big source of industry there. Build a vineyard, uh, and then just like we would maybe have a rental, fix up the rental, we give it to a tenant, and then we go live our lives. Once in a while, they got to pay us rent every month, right? They don't start paying us rent. We come knocking at the door and say, hey, where's my rent? It's the same thing going on here. Jesus says this man, he builds uh, this vineyard, he plants a vineyard, and then he lends it out to tenants, verse 3. They took him and beat him, okay, the servant that he sent. He took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. They struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, he sent another, him they killed, and so with many others. I never caught that before. I'm like, man, I can't believe he sent three guys. Uh, wait, many others. <laughs> he sent a lot. He sent a lot of men. Some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other. He's got one person left to send. It's his beloved son, Right? Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. He's wrong. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? He quotes the Psalms. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So, interesting story. This man plants a vineyard. He goes into another place and, and leaves it to tenants to, to tend it for them, to send the fruit whenever the fruit came, the wine, whatever it was. They're not. He sends some of his servants to collect. Sends servant after servant after servant. They kill him after kill him. They, they, they maim him. They bruise him. They send him away. They don't care. They want the vineyard for themselves. Finally, this guy says, okay, I'm going to send my son because my son has my authority. So he sends his son. What do you know? They kill his son. And so lastly, he, he comes and he destroys those tenants. He takes over and he gives it to somebody else. What a bleak parable, man. This is depressing, right? All right, we'll see you guys next week. No, I mean, sir, this, is, this is kind of depressing a little bit. Like, Jesus, what are you doing here, man? This is, this is bleak. Well, let's look at it. Let's break it down here because there's good news in here, okay? First of all, who are the characters in this story? Okay, first of all, we have the vineyard. Now, anybody who's studied the Bible, you're going you're gonna to kind of get a little flint of this. The vineyard is Israel. The vineyard is Israel. We know that from multiple places throughout the Bible, especially from Isaiah chapter 5. It's, it's a picture of Israel that God chose this people through Abraham to be a plot of land that would bear fruits, that would not be like the rest of the land. It's a picture there that the vineyard is Israel. Secondly, the tenants, okay, the people that he's leasing this place out to. Uh, the tenants are a picture of the religious leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the one that he's talking to. We know that because in verse 12, they perceive that he told the parable against them. They know it's about them. Thirdly, we have the vineyard owner. It's God the Father, right? God the Father, the creator, the one that holds the title deed right now to everything, you know? Fourthly, we have the hired hands sent to receive the fruits of, the, these, these are the prophets, these are the prophets. Did not God send prophet after prophet after prophet for hundreds of years saying, Israel, repent. There is grace for you. Come back to the Lord. Get rid of the idols. Cleanse the temple. Come back to God. And what did they do? They beat them. They ignored them. They ridiculed them over and over. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says that, that, that literally before Jesus came, God spoke through the prophets. And in these last days, he's spoken through Jesus. So, so the, 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 the slaves that this man is sending, the, the, the workers that he's sending to go and collect, they're the prophets. That's what this symbolizes. And lastly, the son, of course, is Jesus, right? I want to say two things. Two things that I think Jesus reveals through this parable, and then we'll be done. Two things Jesus reveals through this parable. The first one, Jesus reveals man's desire to own his own vineyard. Let me say that again. Jesus reveals man's desire to own his own vineyard. Now here before us, we have a story of these men that are literally saying, what are they doing? They're saying, well, this vineyard, even though it's not ours, it should be ours. So what we're going to do is we're going to make it ours by force. We're going to make it ours. We're going to take control of it. And what Jesus is immediately illustrating here by this is the religious leaders. He's saying to them, in the temple, in this conversation, he's saying, you guys are these wicked tenants, and you guys are acting like Israel and religion and these people, these sheep, you're acting like they're yours. And they're not yours. They're God's, the creator, the author, they're his. You don't hold the title deed to that. So Jesus is calling them on the floor and saying, you're acting like something is yours that is not yours, and you will go so far to try to take ownership of that that you will kill even the Son of God, right? Because they want the title deed to their vineyard. 
Now, I don't want you to let yourself off the hook too easy tonight and say, well, I'm not the tenants, because the reality is, is in a lot of ways, we are the tenants, <laughs> okay? We all struggle with tenants' tendencies. I didn't plan that, uh, but it's catchy. Um, we do, okay? This is what's happening in our culture. Here's what people are saying. They're saying, if I kill the son of the vineyard owner, that gives me authority to the vineyard, right? What are they doing in our culture right now? They're trying to kill God. Even more specifically, I shouldn't even say that they're trying to kill Jesus. Our culture does not want Jesus. They want their version of Jesus. They don't want the true version of Jesus. And they will do anything to kill that. Why is there so much hostility and tension in the academic, the scientific world right now centered around intelligent design, centered around Jesus, centered around the gospel, the Bible? Why is there so many scholars that are picking at the history of the Bible and making up assumptions that make it sound like this isn't true, this isn't accurate? Because they're trying to kill the son of the vineyard owner, right? Because if they kill the son of the vineyard owner, they own the vineyard. At least they think, right? That's what they're trying to do. If we can get rid of God, if we can get rid of authority, then we have the authority. Then we take the place of that. Listen to this. Does it sound familiar to you? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is a popular quotation in our culture. What is that saying? I am God. I am authority. I am who makes decisions. I do what I want. And if there is a God out there, that says I can't do what I want, then I will either make my own, ignore it, or say he doesn't exist, right? This is the reality of what's happening. This is the reality of people when they come in contact with Jesus and come in contact with the gospel. They don't want him apart from a supernatural work because realistically what they want is themselves. They want to worship. They want to be the God. They want to steer the ship. Secondly, We'll close with this. The second thing that this parable reveals to us, and this is exciting, okay, is a new way. A new way. Let me explain that. Now, firstly, the son, okay, the son of the vineyard owner, he had legal rights. More legal rights than some of the, 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 the servants and the slaves and things that, that, that this vineyard owner would have sent. So when he sends him, by sending him, he's saying that, that all of the authority that I possess is right now in the son. And I'm sending the son with all that authority in hopes that he can collect on this vineyard. Now, can I just say something really quick? <laughs> what idiot farmer sends his son to go collect after like 20 of your slaves and servants have been murdered? What are you thinking? Seriously, I mean, if you got, think about it. You just lost guy after guy after guy. They obviously don't care that you own this. They obviously don't care that it's your vineyard, that it's your fruit, and they're gonna kill your son. Why would you send him in there? It just seems ridiculous. It seems like a failure, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, sure, you know, at the end of the story, he comes in and he, and he gets rid of him and he gives the vineyard to someone else, but it seems like a failure. Why? Because he lost his son. Cares if he got his vineyard back. His son's dead. This is weird. What's happening here? Listen, I'll tell you. <laughs> in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Let me read that again. For God so loved the world that he gave his, you ever heard this before? The son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you think the father didn't know what was gonna happen to his son when he sent him? Was he an idiot? No. Is, father, is, is, God, the, is the, God the Father, is he an idiot? Was he an idiot when he sent Jesus into Jerusalem, when he sent Jesus into this world to become a man? Was Jesus an idiot? I mean, what, what, were they like, oh, shoot, man, after three years of ministry, the Pharisees hate me and they're going to throw me on a cross, and oh, man, I didn't know I was going to fall into the meat grinder. This is a bummer. This was an accident. It was supposed to, I was supposed to rule and reign, and this was going to be great, and my disciples and this and that, and now they're going to crucify me. Oh, this is not what I was planning. No, if that's not what he was planning, Jesus wouldn't be giving this parable. This was not a failure. This was not an accident. The father knew when he sent his son to collect on this vineyard, he knew what he was doing. Now listen to this. I'm almost done. If you can, if you can just cue in on this. This is so cool. God, the father, used the evil means and intentions of the tenants to accomplish the impossible. What do you mean? He used what do you mean he used? He used the evil intentions of these tenants to accomplish something. Listen to this. Jesus used the violence, the wickedness, the hatred, the cruelty, the selfishness, the pride, the disobedience, the rebellion, and the hard-heartedness of men to accomplish the very means by which we would be saved from such sin. That we, the tenants, would be saved from such sin. Do you guys understand that? Jesus didn't go to the cross on accident. Jesus wasn't brutally murdered by the Pharisees, by the Romans, in order, because it was an accident. It went wrong. He went to the cross on purpose. He went to the cross willingly. He went to the cross with all authority, with all strength, with all power, and he conquered what we could not conquer, death. Right? This is phenomenal. The Father sent him on purpose to do what we could not do, and he used the sin of man to save man from his sin. <laughs> we thought about that? He used the very the most wicked way you could possibly think to murder someone on a cross, making them suffocate where they can't breathe because they can't lift themselves up with nails through their hands and their feet and crown of thorns in their head, this brutally wicked way of killing Jesus to save them from their very brutally and wicked ways. It's phenomenal. It's the gospel. It's not an accident. And Jesus knows it's coming. That's why he tells them this story. You think it just happens that the story has to do with a son dying? Jesus knows he's going to the cross. That's why he sweat blood in the garden. He knows he's going to take the wrath of God for all men at one time, and it scares the blood out of him, literally, physically. It's terrifying. This is not a failure. And Jesus was not a weak fool. Jesus had all authority, and he knew what was happening, and he knew they were going to crucify him. In fact, he knew exactly when and exactly how. He knew. And he did it anyways. He used his authority not to crush those that would crucify him, not to crush the Romans. He used his authority to crush death for you and me. That's the gospel. That's good news. So we have another option now. We, we don't have to ignore God. We don't have to pretend or, or we don't have to say he's not there and refuse his existence. We don't have to say, I have to earn God's favor. We don't have to say, I'm going to create my own God that doesn't exist. And we don't have to reject God. Why? Because Jesus has become that new way for us. Jesus has become the way that, the only way to understand the authority of God, and that is the rebirth of our heart. 
There's only five avenues for you there apart from the rebirth of your heart. Unless God gives you a new heart, as he said uh, to, 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 I don't remember his name, but as he said to, help me out here, you have to be, what was it? Nicodemus, he said to Nicodemus, you have to be reborn. How can a man enter into his womb again? Jesus was talking about the rebirth of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that we would be new and made new and given a new heart, and that's the only way that we can approach the authority of Jesus. And the authority of Jesus is not burdensome. You want to know why, when I was a kid, I didn't want to come to Jesus? It wasn't because I didn't think it was true. It's because I thought it would be burdensome. I thought it would be a list of rules that I would fall short of. I just, I just thought it would be a bummer. I just thought it would be this just, Jesus was just this, this deistic bully. I was wrong. I was wrong. There is no greater joy than understanding the authority of Jesus, submitting under the authority of Jesus, knowing why you were made and who you were made for, right? There's nothing greater than that. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Peace I live, give unto you. Peace I leave with you. These are the words of our Lord. He gets the authority. Give him the authority. Don't be like the Pharisees and say, ah, I just want what I want and I'm gonna literally crucify you to keep you from having the authority in my life. Just give it to him. You will be happier than you have ever been in your life. Amen? Let's stand up and pray. Jesus, you're, uh, you're the author, the finisher of not only this world, the creation, but you're the author and finisher of our faith. You've started something in us, God, that the Holy Spirit is now working and finishing as we're sanctified, Lord. And you'll complete it. I thank you, uh, Jesus, that you are the greatest leader there is. That, Jesus, you are a high priest that can, that can uh, relate to us. That you're a high priest that cares about us. Not like these wicked Sanhedrin that only cared for their own, their own uh, stuff, their own life. That, Jesus, you care about us. You love us. You're a shepherd. You're a father. You're a king. Your heart is for us, and the greatest joy we can have is when we recognize that your authority is the greatest joy we can have, to submit ourselves under you as the one that loves us more than anyone. And I pray, Lord, that yokes of bondage would be lifted tonight by the gospel. Lord, the simple truth that, Jesus, you are the king, the simple truth that, Jesus, you are the authority, whether we like it or not. (laughs) Lord, that you will reign over all, whether they ignore it Pretend like it's not there. But Jesus, I thank you that we look forward to you reigning. Lord, I look forward to being in heaven with you on your throne, God, looking at your glory forever. Go with us, I pray, Father, and remind us of the gospel every day, Lord. I pray that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and that, uh, Lord, we would just look more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good night.